We're going to take a two-week break from our series in Drawing God, although today's sermon is somewhat related to that theme. But before we come to the communion table a bit later, I wanted us to look today at the question that God is asked most. That's the title for our sermon this morning, the question that God is asked most. Have you ever asked God any questions? Uh, Do you have a list of questions that you would like to ask God? My kids and I used to joke that that we had questions that we'd like to ask God, and we said we should always keep them in our back pocket in case of rapture. Questions like, do dogs go to heaven? Uh, Did Adam have a belly button? (laughs) Think about that one for a moment. (laughs) Why did God make mosquitoes? But, But then, of course, there are the more serious questions as well, aren't they, as we get older? And as we do get older, those questions become deeper and more urgent. I think, though, that at the top of everybody's list of questions would be this question, the question that God is asked the most It's the question, oh God, why? It's a question that we ask as we look around our world and see an earthquake in Morocco or the floods in Libya. It's a question that we ask about events and circumstances in our own lives, even as a church this past week as we've lost Ethelwyn. Lord, why? Why, just before her family were coming out to visit her, why didn't we get a chance to say goodbye? Perhaps for some folk here this morning, the question isn't an academic one, but one that is deeply personal. Perhaps the question relates to your marriage or to your children, to your job, to your friends, to your family. Oh, God, why? The question isn't new. In fact, it's been around for at least 3,000 years. Uh, 3,000 years ago, this question was asked in the Bible. The psalmist asks this, uh, this question right at the beginning of Psalm 22. And that's our scripture reading for this morning. Let's have a look. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why are you so far from saving me, so far from the words of my groaning? O my God, I cry out by day, but you do not answer, by night and am not silent. Yet you are enthroned as the Holy One. You are the praise of Israel. In you our fathers put their trust. They trusted and you delivered them. They cried to you and were saved. In you they trusted and were not disappointed." But I am a worm and not a man, scorned by men and despised by the people. All who see me mock me. They hurl insults, shaking their heads. He trusts in the Lord. Let the Lord rescue him. Let him deliver him, since he delights in him. Yet you brought me out of the womb. You made me trust in you, even at my mother's breast. From birth I was cast upon you. From my mother's womb you have been my God. Do not be far from me, for trouble is near and there is no one to help. Many bulls surround me, 
Strong bulls of Bashan encircle me, roaring lions tearing their prey, open their mouths wide against me. I am poured out like water, and all my bones are out of joint. My heart has turned to wax, it has melted away within me. My strength is dried up like a potsherd, and my tongue sticks to the roof of my mouth. You lay me in the dust of death. Dogs have surrounded me. A band of evil men has encircled me. They have pierced my hands and my feet. I can count all my bones. People stare and gloat over me. They divide my garments among them and cast lots for my clothing. But you, O Lord, be not far off. O my strength, come quickly to help me. Deliver my life from the sword, my precious life from the power of the dogs. Rescue me from the mouth of the lions. Save me from the horns of the wild oxen. I will declare your name to my brothers in the congregation. I will praise you. You who fear the Lord, praise him. All you descendants of Jacob, honor him. Revere him, all you descendants of Israel, for he has not despised or disdained the suffering of the afflicted one. He has not hidden his face from him, but has listened to his cry for help. From you comes the theme of my praise in the great assembly. Before those who fear you will I fulfill my vows. The poor will eat and be satisfied. They who seek the Lord will praise him. May your hearts live forever. All the ends of the earth will remember and turn to the Lord, and all the families of the nations will bow down before him, for dominion belongs to the Lord, and he rules over the nations. All the rich of the earth will feast and worship. All who go down to the dust will kneel before him, those who cannot keep themselves alive. Posterity will serve him. Future generations will be told about the Lord. They will proclaim his righteousness to a people yet unborn, for he has done it. And this is God's word. So if you look carefully at this psalm, you'll notice that there are actually two parts to it. You probably picked it up as we read. Verses 1 to 21 can be described as tragedy, and then verses 22 to 31 can be described as triumph. Let's start with tragedy, and let's have a look at the situation in which this man found himself. We're not 100% sure exactly what this man is going through, but he appears to be sick, and he's certainly close to death. So verses 14 and 15, he says, I'm poured out like water, all my bones are out of joint, my heart has turned to wax, it has melted away within me, my strength is dried up like a potsherd, and my tongue sticks to the roof of my mouth. You lay me in the dust of death. But actually, it's not this man's sickness that is his biggest problem. Nowhere in the psalm does this man ask God to heal him or to save him from death. No, his biggest problem is the absence of God or the seeming absence of God. Look at the first two verses again. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why are you so far from saving me, so far from the words of my groaning? O oh my God, I cry out by day, but you do not answer, by night, and am not silent. This man asks three questions. Why have you forsaken me? Why have you made no attempt to save me? And why have you not listened to my groaning? I keep on bringing my prayers before you by day and by night. I am not silent, but you are. 
This is the psalmist's biggest problem. He's in trouble, and God seems to be a million miles away. C.S. Lewis described this experience in his own life. Clive Lewis was a great Christian writer and thinker of the last uh, century. He died in 1963, probably best known for his Narnia books, The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, and the rest. As an older man, he finally found love in his life when he married the American writer, Joy Gresham. But then he had to go through the pain of losing her to cancer. Uh, he wrote a book about his experience called A Grief Observed. And at one point in the book, he, he wrote this. Meanwhile, where is God? When you are happy, so happy that you have no sense of needing him, if you remember yourself and turn to him with gratitude and praise, you will be, or so it feels, welcomed with open arms. But go to him when, when your need is desperate, when all other help is vain. And what do you find? A door slammed in your face and a sound of bolting and double bolting on the inside. After that silence, you may as well turn away. The longer you wait, the more emphatic the silence will become. There are no lights in the windows. It might be an empty house. Was it ever inhabited? It seemed so once. And that seeming was as strong as this. What can this mean? Why is he so present a commander in our time of prosperity and so very absent a help in time of trouble? The psalmist's problem is further compounded because God seems to come through for other people and yet not for him. If you look at verses 3 to 5, you are enthroned as the Holy One. You are the praise of Israel. In you our fathers put their trust. They trusted and you delivered them. They cried to you and were saved. In you they trusted and were not disappointed. I wonder if you've ever experienced that in your own life, that God seems to be blessing everybody else around you, answering their prayers, but not yours. And that can lead to real feelings of inferiority, inadequacy, guilt, and even resentment. Well, if the psalmist's biggest problem is the silence of God, then his next biggest problem is the noise of his enemies. God is absent, and yet his enemies are very real. The psalmist uses a whole lot of different images to describe these enemies. He refers to them as bulls. Verse 12, many bulls surround me, strong bulls of Bashan encircle me. Now, don't think of a bull quietly munching grass in a field, but think of a bull in an arena with a matador or a cowboy trying to ride a wild bull or the running of the bulls in Spain. Now, bulls are dangerous. He refers to these enemies as lions in verse 13. Roaring lions tearing their prey, open their mouths wide against me. And he refers to them as dogs in verse 16. Dogs have surrounded me. A band of evil men has encircled me. Uh, in the ancient Near East, dogs were not man's best friend. He's not talking about tame little lap dogs, but he's talking about the wild dogs that lived out in the rubbish dumps and would come along and attack and bite and even kill sick and weak people. This man's enemies encircle him and trap him and terrify him. They can't wait for him to die. In fact, while he's still alive, they're arguing about who's going to get what when he's finally gone. Verse 18, 
They divide my garments among them and cast lots for my clothing. And these enemies also hit him where it hurts the most. His greatest problem is the seeming absence of God. And these enemies pick up on this in verses 7 and 8. All who see me mock me. They hurl insults, shaking their heads. He trusts in the Lord. Let the Lord rescue him. Let him deliver him, since he delights in him. You know, there's nothing worse than being in distress and in those moments having people question your relationship with God, whether that's non-believers who are saying, how can you believe in God, or even believers who sometimes think that their relationship with God is fine and there must be something wrong with you if you're struggling. In fact, it makes this man feel subhuman, a worm, close to death, close to being worm food, in verse 6. I am a worm and not a man, scorned by men, despised by the people. So this man is sick, he's close to death, he's surrounded by people who hate him and want him to die, and in the middle of this, God seems to be a million miles away. So what, what do we do with the first 21 verses of this psalm? I think there are a couple of important things. And firstly, I would say that this psalm reminds us that it's okay not to be okay. In fact, the whole book of Psalms teaches us this. When we hear the word psalms, we tend to think of term, in terms of praise and worship and thanksgiving. But there are more laments than there are songs of praise in the book of Psalms. We all know Psalm 23, the Lord is my shepherd. And I believe that God has specifically placed Psalm 22 and Psalm 23 side by side to show us that joy and comfort and sorrow and sadness are all a part of the normal Christian life. One writer points out that, you know, we wouldn't say to a person in grief and sorrow that they need to pull themselves together. We would be far more gentle and patient with them and comfort them. And that means that we should be gentle and patient with ourselves. We should not assume that if we are trusting in God, we won't weep or feel anger or feel hopeless at times. Second, the psalm encourages us to be honest in our relationship with God. The fact that Psalm 22 is recorded in Scripture shows that we don't have to lie to God. We don't have to cover things up. We're allowed to be honest and allowed to be open. The psalmist doesn't pretend that everything is going well. He doesn't tell God what he thinks God wants to hear. He tells it like it is. And if you think about it, being honest with someone is an indication of intimacy. When the cashier at the shop asks me how I'm doing, I don't blurt out my entire week. I share that with those who are closest to me, with my wife, perhaps with, with my parents. And God wants us to have that intimate relationship with him where we tell him exactly what's going on in our lives. He's a loving father. He knows it anyway. And he wants his children to be honest and open with him. And if we're really feeling something to tell him, God, I don't understand what you're doing. Lord, I don't feel that you're here at the moment. Lord, how can you allow that? It's the picture of a toddler who is in pain, crying, screaming, hitting his fists against the chest of his father, 
who is holding him tightly. Through the Holy Spirit, God inspired and compiled the scriptures for us. And it's so important that God hasn't censored out prayers like this one. God doesn't look at this psalm and say, hmm, real believers don't talk like that. I don't want anything like this in my Bible. He includes it to show us that in times of darkness, we can be honest and open. Thirdly, this psalm reminds us to hold on to God. The most beautiful phrase in this psalm are the first two words, my God. The very fact that the psalmist comes to God with his problem shows that he still trusts in God. He may have given up on God's righteousness, he may have given up on God's goodness, but he steadfastly refuses to give up on God. Reminds me of that wonderful scene in John chapter 6 where there are large groups of people who are leaving Jesus, turning away from him, deserting him. And Jesus turns to the twelve and says to them, you don't want to leave us, leave me either, do you? And Simon Peter replies, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. We believe and know that you are the Holy One of God. Peter holds on to Jesus even when it becomes difficult to follow him. The psalmist holds on to God's sovereignty in verses 9 and 10. He reminds himself, you brought me out of the womb. You made me trust in you even at my mother's breast. From birth I was cast upon you. From my mother's womb you have been my God. Even though he doesn't understand what God is doing, he still holds on to God and the fact that God is in control. And you and I can do the same in our situations. And fourthly, this psalm points us to Jesus. You'll remember that Jesus quoted this psalm as he was hanging on the cross. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And in fact, there are a number of points of contrast and contact, rather, between this sufferer in the Old Testament and Jesus as the sufferer in the New Testament. Verses 7 and 8, they hurl insults, shaking their heads. He trusts in the Lord. Let the Lord rescue him. Let him deliver him, since he delights in him. Matthew tells us that the crowds who walked past Jesus as he was on the cross shook their heads and said these exact words. All my bones are out of joint, describing the crucifixion. My tongue sticks to the roof of my mouth, Jesus saying, I'm thirsty. They've pierced my hands and feet. Amazing. Crucifixion hadn't even been uh, invented yet uh, when Psalm 22 was written. People stare and gloat over me. They divide my garments among them and cast lots for my clothing which is exactly what the Roman guards did at the foot of the cross. And this all just reminds us that whatever you are experiencing today, God knows and understands from the inside of your experience. Have you been betrayed? So was Jesus. Have you been lonely? So was he. Have you been rejected, misunderstood, sidelined? So was he. Have you been destitute? So was he. Have you been abused? So was he. Have you lost someone close to you? So did he. Have you faced death? So has he. 
As the writer of the book of Hebrews reminds us, Jesus was tested and tempted in every way, just as we are, yet was without sin. Do you feel abandoned by God? So was Jesus. On the cross, at the moment when Jesus needed his Father the most, what did he find? In Lewis's words, a door slammed in his face and a sound of bolting and double bolting on the inside. After that, silence. The Father was no longer with him. The Father turned his back on the Son. Jesus was abandoned by God. For the psalmist in Psalm 22, it just felt as if God had forsaken him. For you and me, it just feels as if God had forsaken us. But Jesus experienced a depth of God-forsakenness that no one on this earth has ever experienced. Jesus cried out from the depth of his soul in bewilderment and disorientation, My God, my God, why? Why have you forsaken me? And the answer to his question, why? For me, for you. Paul writes to the Corinthians and he says that God made Jesus, who had no sin, to be sin for us, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Jesus was abandoned by God so that you and I need never, ever be abandoned by God. On the cross, Jesus cries out, my God. It's the only time in the Gospels where he doesn't call God my Father. In other words, on the cross, Jesus gave up his right to call God Father so that you and I, who have no right whatsoever to call God our Father, may come humbly before him and say, my Father. Jesus took what we deserve so we could have the heaven and the glory that he deserved. Well, that was the first part of the psalm, tragedy. But the psalm moves on in verse 22 and moves to triumph. You'll be relieved to know I'm not going to go through all of that in detail. Our time is running out. But just to say that God comes through for this man. We don't know the story. We don't know what happened. But there's a definite turning point in verse 22. God has heard the psalmist cry for help, and he's answered him in some way. Presumably, he's been healed, and his enemies have left him alone. So verse 22, I will declare your name to my brothers. In the congregation, I will praise you. You who fear the Lord, praise him. All you descendants of Jacob, honor him. Revere him, all you descendants of Israel. For he has not despised or disdained the suffering of the afflicted one. He's not hidden his face from him, but has listened to his cry for help. And when we turn to the cross, we see the same thing happened, that God answered. There was a great turning point that took place. It's called Easter Sunday. The resurrection of Jesus from the dead was God's resounding yes to the person and work of his son. And this is the promise and the hope of the cross, that because Jesus died and rose again, we know that we are safe with him if we trust him, if our lives are united to him. Not even death can snatch us out of his hand. And Jesus went through death, and so we can know that after death comes life, after night comes day, after Good Friday comes Easter Sunday, 
that love is stronger than death if we believe in Jesus. It also suggests to me, though, that times of darkness can reveal God's grace in new ways. In other words, God doesn't waste our suffering. Our suffering isn't something that we have to get through before we can begin to grow again spiritually. It's part of our spiritual growth. Our sufferings deepen our relationship with God. In his book, Walking with God Through Pain and Suffering, Timothy Keller puts it this way, in the darkness, we have a choice that is not really there for us in our better times. We can choose to serve God just because he is God. In the darkest moments, we feel we are getting absolutely nothing out of God or out of our relationship with him. But what if then, when it does not seem to be paying or benefiting you at all, you continue to obey, continue to pray, continue to seek God, as well as continue to do your duties of love to others. If we do that, we're finally learning to love God for himself and not for his benefits. And when the darkness lifts or lessens, we will find that our dependence on other things besides God for our happiness has shrunk and that we have new strength and contentment in God himself. We'll find a new fortitude, unflappability, poise, and peace in the face of difficulty. The coal is becoming diamond. Such a good quote, that in our darkness, we have the opportunity to do something that we don't get to do when we're happy. In the darkness, when God seems to be absent, we get to hold on to God and trust him and love him for himself not for anything that he is giving to us. As we close, let me read to you a quote from Michael Wilcock. Uh, this is in his commentary on the Psalms, and he imagines Jesus speaking to us through this Psalm, through Psalm 22. He says this, It is true that Christ himself came down into darkness in this way and was lifted out again. But here he is concerned to reach back through his word to the soul that is stuck in the depths. This can happen to a believer, he says. It doesn't mean you are lost. This can happen to someone who does not deserve it. After all, it happened to me. It doesn't mean you have strayed. It can happen at any time as long as this world lasts. Only in the next will such things be done away with. And it can happen without you knowing why. There are answers, there is a purpose, and one day you will know. Let's keep on going to God then, being honest and open with him, holding on to him, knowing that we approach someone who himself was a man of sorrows and familiar with suffering.